Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of The London Circle. Today we'll be talking about one of the most important charitable sectors in the UK. We're going to be talking about the Muslim charitable sector, lauded by many officials, many a Prime Minister, as one of the most kind and generous and giving sectors within the charitable sector in the UK. Today I'll be talking with Jahangir Muhammad, director of Ayan Institute, we're going to be discussing the impact of the Muslim charitable sector, the challenges it faces within and also from outside. We're going to be discussing about the role of the charitable sector in creating a positive change for the entire country. Enjoy. It's now a well-known fact, and it's been said for year after year after year by prime ministers, by ministers, by officials that uh, the Muslim charitable sector in the UK is one of the most thriving, is the most often said generous, is the most giving, is the most dynamic and active. And the numbers of Muslim charities, and we're talking here about an array of organizations starting from schools and mosques and Islamic centers and all the way to charitable and aid and relief organizations. I mean, the, the, the sector is, is vast, it's huge. And the amounts of money that uh, we hear every single year amount to the tens of billions. And obviously in any civil society, the charitable sector is one of the most vital and crucial. But particularly in this, partic in this case, and in this particular time of the life of the Muslim community here in Britain, and you know, you're in London because of a of a conference of a getting together of various charities. Uh, I know for a fact that there are people coming also from Europe and from the United States also to take part. It would be a a useful exercise to describe when we're talking about the Muslim charity sector, uh, and before we come to the challenges and difficulties, what are we talking about exactly? What's the size of what we're talking about? What what is the impact of this particular sector on, on British life? I think um, one of the issues that we have is actually nobody's really mapped the size of the charity sector. I mean, uh, we uh, looked at, uh, at it from uh, the Ayan Institute. We did a report and we found just for international charity, UK charities, Muslim charities that work international, we found 1,026. Now, I was shocked because I was expecting uh, a few hundred. And since that report, which was earlier this year, uh, I'm finding 40, 50, 60 every day more charities that I've never heard of. Uh, yesterday, I was at this conference and people coming to talk to me, giving me their cards. I'd never heard of some of these charities. So it's vastly greater than that. And that's just the um, international charities. We have mosques, mosque-based charities. We know there are 2,700 mosques and uh, prayer houses. Uh, and then we have charities that are UK-based that do service-type work um, or, you know, and specialist needs uh, in the UK. And nobody's ever mapped that. And, you know, we know um, that that's uh, that's an enormous. So I'd say you were looking at. You know, in the course, it's funny you mentioned this because in the course of of this particular program, I've come across, you know, individuals, people who work in the charitable sector on things that I never 
thought, I never contemplated that this was also, I mean, for instance, abuse, victims of domestic abuse, um, mental health issues, you know, think, and, and all of this is within a sector which we take immense pride in, which we hear time and again from the government that is doing so fantastically well, but we know very, very little of. And absolutely. And we, uh, you know, um, from uh, our experience of local government and working in local government, we know there are loads of community centres, there are uh, other types of youth uh, charities. Uh, so, so it's massive. Uh, the issue we have is uh, a lot of charities, uh, the Charity Commission database doesn't record by either religion or faith and a lot of charities don't have muslim names yes so there's actually you you know you can't but just to show you how that's growing uh i mean if i tell you how many charities i'm registering at the moment or gotten my books that we're registering that's 12 uh and that's young people volunteers i registered a uh afghan women's charity uh, three women. There's another wo- women's charity. The you know registering mosques. So and the inquiries I get. Uh, I've had an inquiry this morning <laughs> before I got here about registering charities. And these are often people who are already working or doing work, but have not got to the stage of registering as a charity. So the charitable sector is huge. We uh, Ayan we. Uh, the figures that we managed to get from the Charity Commission, the income of the charities working internationally was uh, in 2021, was uh, 2021 was 708 million. And uh, the amazing thing is within the year, they spent 611 million, uh, which that takes some energy and effort. Uh, And in that sector, there are... um, uh, you know, uh, 10,000 volunteers, 4, 000, around 4,000 uh, trustees, uh, 4,000 staff. That's just in that sector alone. Uh, now, if you add to that the income of the mosques and the UK-based charities, it doesn't take a genius to work out that that's more than a billion pound. And if you look at the population growth, of the Muslim popul- uh, population, the forecast to 2050, which we did a projection, and how the sector has been, the in- the money being donated is increasing year on year. We put a conservative uh, estimate of ra- around 20%, uh, and by 2050, we're looking at four billion pound. And, and that's purely because youngsters are growing up, more women are working, so income's increasing, and of uh, and of course the tragedies in the Muslim Ummah are uh, great, and the need is great. Which raises the first issue that's you know I I think that well at least myself, but I I think that many people watching this will also uh, be interested in that is that out of out of the billion, out of the projected four billion in a few years' time. Uh, how much of that will go to the development of either the Muslim community or British society? It will be reinvested within uh, within society, within our communities. And how much of that will leave our shores to go in order to support and to help and to assist people in need? And uh, obviously, that's a very you know fair call. I don't think that anyone would argue 
that uh, someone who has the capacity to sponsor an orphan in Pakistan, for instance, or build a well in Ghana, or or, uh, or to help refugees in in various places, I don't think that anyone would argue against that. But the question of the percentage always comes up. So out of that billion in your estimate, maybe even your figures that you've analyzed, how much of that stays and how much of that leaves? Um, you know, I, I think um, there are already lots of charities working in the UK. We, we probably haven't been able to map it and show how much. So I think um, it's probably significant already. I mean, the, U- the mosques are all in the UK. Um, community centers are all in the UK, schools, Islamic schools. So we're already putting a lot of investment. Um, But I think, you know, this idea that um, uh, you should either, uh, that we we live here, we should invest here, whilst uh, I understand that, sometimes it comes from the far right, that they're sending their money overseas, and we shouldn't have that distinction. Muslims will, as any other community, I mean, we have Christian charities who, uh, you know, spend money overseas. We have, uh, you know, uh, non-secular charities who do work. Human beings will always give to where there is need. uh, And we shouldn't have an expectation that we should do more here if we're not good citizens if we're um, doing less here. And it's not an either-or It's or not either-or. Either so I think both will continue. It will largely depend on how the Muslim world takes shape, the development in the, in the Muslim world, uh, and the wars and the conflicts. If they stop, of course, we will have more income to spend here. On, on things that we want to want to do. So uh, I, I don't think we should get into how much, uh, you know, my experience from the uh, charity community sector and local government, where there's a need, human beings will do, will do and set up charitable work uh, to meet that need. I mean, this country is a beautiful and prime example of, um, you know, the char- uh, uh, faith-based uh, uh, charities and and philanthropy long before the welfare state. They were the architects of that uh, churches and, uh, you know, the Quakers, if you look at that movement. Uh, so Muslims, uh, you know, we it's part of our deen. So we will naturally do that anyway. Um, you know, it might be schools are a priority. We might start do, uh, funding other things, um, youth work. I mean, counselling is one uh, at the moment. We don't have enough counselling. Um, but we do, do need to do that strategic work, some of us, to show what areas are lacking. You're absolutely right, because you do get a sense sometimes, and once again, this is an impression rather than any kind of analysis or, or study, but you you sense sometimes that there's a lot of overlapping and there's a lot of uh, duplication of the same efforts. Um, and, I, you know, when you find, for instance, 10 charities, major charities, we're not talking about very small, you know, dealing in the thousands or tens of thousands, we're talking about uh, the charities that are dealing, hopefully, in the hundreds of thousands, probably even millions, uh, all, for instance, uh, doing something for Syria. Of course, you realize that the the calamity is so vast that it takes not only 10 
charities it needs a hundred charities probably even uh, several governments also to, to pile in in order to, uh, to 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 sort of appease that kind of or alleviate that kind of issue and we're not talking here about politics because you know that's that's a different thing but there is that kind of sense that there's there is a lot of duplication on you know on one level and there's quite uh, a, a vacuum on many other levels you know like i said for instance when i heard that there was um, a home for abused uh, wives i've ever i've only heard doing the research uh, i only knew of three organizations when maybe we need at least you know 10 more at least if not even 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 greater than that um victims of domestic violence for instance uh, people with mental health issues disabled kids sports clubs you know that that's that's a sector where muslims are heavily involved but uh, maybe not to the extent that we actually need and require, especially in inner cities where children, young people could, are, are vulnerable to gangs and to, to, to crime and, and, and the like. So, so there's that. But I'd also like to hear from you regarding over the past few years, we've heard more and more about the Charity Commission and about difficulties posed by the Charity Commission. Obviously, before that, we had prevent, and how prevent sort of saw its uh, its way into the the structure and the very body of the Muslim charitable sector, and got involved with some of those clubs and the, some of those some of those charities. And somehow now it's very difficult to to extract, uh, you know, prevent or to try to separate them uh, as 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 a policy from from many of the charities. So these are some of the issues that um, that are often discussed whenever talking about the Muslim charitable sector. Yeah, I mean, uh, let's start with the impact one because I think before we go on to the charity commission, because you've raised that, uh, you know, um, competition, and you're right, a lot of charities are doing the same thing, even internationally. Everybody's doing food aid. Uh, and we know food aid is needed, but uh, we need to be a bit more strategic. It's the easiest ask. People who are starving in camps, that's an emotional picture, helps your fundraising. But, you know, even in Syria, we could have done a lot more. Uh, I was on the border. I've been to some of the hospitals. And, you know, um, ch children who've been hit by a barrel, a shrap piece of shrapnel, uh, and they're paralyzed the body down uh, head head down only the head works the rest of the body is paralyzed now if we'd put more thought if we'd had a strategy we could have provided protective clothing nobody did that we could have taught people how to avoid uh, these scenarios what to do nobody did that i mean libya is another one uh, you know over the last decade i've I had people in libya saying can you get charities to work in libya um, we need uh, artificial limbs. We're buying them from Europe and they are basically charging us the earth. Can some charity fund a factory to build artificial limbs? And of course, hardly any charities worked in Libya. You have the Libyan floods and all of a sudden, everybody's saying we're on the ground in Libya and they're fundraising. So I think 
we do need to think about impact, the same with mosques, the same with schools. Uh, do we all need to be doing the same thing? Is there something that we that we can do? Um, are there other needs that are being neglected? Uh, women's needs, particularly overseas, uh, widely neglected on the ground. Uh, women's are, uh, women are, and children are the biggest victims in uh, refugee camps, and yet there's you know not enough attention paid to the needs of women, primarily because the sector is male dominated and women are not part of the project design. Regarding the Charity Commission, I think certainly the war on terror brought a, a counter-terrorism climate around the world. You prevent, you mentioned that, and Muslims began to be seen through the lens of extremism and terrorism, uh, even their charities. Uh, and then you have, uh, it's certainly one of the chal uh, challenges Muslim charities work in a hostile environment. Sometimes the states that they're working in want to close them down. They don't. Um, and then you have uh, Islamophobic uh, groups in the UK. You have hostile media, all reporting. And then you have a state which uh, is looking for terrorism threats everywhere. Uh, and I think that fed through into the Charity Commission's work. Um, I wouldn't, uh, I think it did, certainly under Shawcross, I think it became it sort of from a regulatory body, it became a bit more of a policing body. But uh, I think that has calmed down, that's changing. Uh, and I think uh, it's a learning curve as well for the Charity Commission. Uh, what I would say is that the Charity Commission, um, if somebody's reporting, that this charity is uh, funding terrorism or doing that, they're going to investigate. So it's not always the Charity Commission um, that, that is uh, the sort of architect. If different governments or lobbies are pestering the Charity Commission or politicians um, or the media reporting, then they have to uh, go in. And of course, Muslim charities um, work in high-risk areas. Uh, we come from uh, countries that are war-torn or having all kinds of political, economic, uh, civil crisis. So uh, they're considered high-risk. But I think what I would say is we, we hear all the stories about charities. Given the number of charities that there are, uh, the Charity Commission uh, has probably never been near most of the charities. I mean, certainly the the clients that I deal with, yes, they are being investigated, but equally I've got a lot of charities who have never seen the Charity Commission in 30, 40 years. Um, so we need to perhaps have a bit of balance to that. Uh, it was a learning curve for, I guess, Charity Commission officers, uh, learning about the hostile think tanks out there, the hostile groups, uh, the hostile reporting, and that not all of it is true. Um, but I would say that we still uh, have a, uh, in this country, um, you know, the charities, the regulation is important, and we still have a light touch regulation, regulatory body. Um, I mean, uh, how many charities have been closed down? Hardly any, I would say, a, few, a, a handful.
So there was an environment uh, and the, the charity commission had to learn how to deal with that. And uh, we also had to deal, deal how to learn, uh, learn how to deal with how, that. I, I mean, one of the things that you were interested in and probably even spoke of at the conference uh, is the issue of governance. And obviously, this is something that has to do with these charities internally. Now, we might um, realize or know that uh, you know transparency, for instance, and proper accounting and proper dealing with with funds and um, achieving the objectives declared by the charity. All of these things they, they make sense. They they they're, they're not really that difficult to understand and comprehend. But the issue of governance, as I am assuredly told by experts within the field, is an issue within within the Muslim charitable sector. Um, if you could tell us just a little bit about that. Yes, I think uh, it's definitely um, an issue. Um, uh, you have to, I think, you, uh, uh, when I was in local government, we funded lots of businesses and regeneration projects and community projects. And there was always... The historical sort of view was that the uh, there's a voluntary and community sector, and there's the public sector, the professional sector, and the standards expected of each were different. Because in the charity and voluntary sector, you had a lot of volunteers, people who um, were giving their time voluntarily, their effort, doing good works. Uh, so it was about building their capacity and, and learning. I think that's changed with the regulatory burdens, which is a real challenge for charities. Charities are now expected to be more professional. So it's uh, as a local government uh, would be or, you know, the private sector would be. So the burden of regulation is much greater, the requirement for paperwork and things that they've never done before. Um, so, you know, risks, risk management. I mean, it's second nature to me because I worked in a sector where I had to do that. Um, but, you know, even if you've got policies, it requires a culture, a cultural shift and a change. Filling in paperwork, making sure that you can demonstrate that you are regulatory uh, compliant uh, with regulation. Um, it's, it's a hard ask for um, uh, people. And it's not just the Charity Commission. Uh, banks, counterterrorism, safeguarding. Uh, so there's a lot of paperwork, um, health and safety that charities uh, are, are basically having to do. Uh, and a lot of them don't have a lot of staff or um, I mean, that's an issue in itself. They have the attitude that the more you save on staff, the more of your money's going to, well, you can't do that anymore. So there's a whole change uh, in expectations uh, and that puts a great burden. And, and yes, there's a lot of bad governance out there, um, but we have to build the capacity of those those groups. I mean, we do some things very poorly. Conflicts of interest For instance, and yeah, loyalty. Uh, we are not really good at that. And sometimes we don't even take it that seriously. We get a lot of issues uh, like that. We have a wider political environment. Uh, we're not very good at um, managing risk. We have volunteers who work uh, overseas. At the moment, Gaza people are very emotional. Naturally, they're going to say things. 
Um, so trustees and charities are having to do different things, manage social media, uh, manage, uh, um, you know, the hostile people actually going through the, you know, 40 years of tweets <laughs> um, to see if this person is a anti-Semite or, uh, you know, racist or anti-LGBT. So the environment that the, we work in is different. Uh, and um, as I say, it's still primarily uh, board members are volunteers. And we have some staff, but there's thousands of volunteers. It's still a voluntary-led sector. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, issues and banking is another one. I mean, you know, the banking. Yeah, I mean, this is something that obviously I, I, I know about, but uh, but it appears to be something that the charitable sector, and particularly the Muslim charitable sector, has also been facing uh, with many preferring not to speak out and not to talk. Firstly, a fear that they're secondary bank accounts might be subsequently closed down and obviously because of issues of trust with their with their donors with their sponsors with their backers uh, you know when you hear of a particular organization whom you're volunteering for or donating to um, having their bank accounts closed that's not a good thing definitely yes and um, you know as I say that sometimes the uh, the requirement for paperwork from the bank and the questions. I mean, I just had somebody on the phone this morning about the questions that, that were being asked. Uh, it's actually, uh, I've, and I see the letters, uh, they, uh, it's actually you know much more onerous than the Charity Commission. Uh, so this is another level. And certainly in the last three or four years, all my clients that I've dealt with have had banking issues, mm -hmm. and that's a lot. Uh, so I've seen the letters, um, and it's uh, bank de-risking. I mean, this started 15 years ago when um, the U.S. imposed a fine on, I can't remember which bank it was, Barclays or HSBC, I'm not sure, a massive fine. And, and uh, a process of de-risking started to take place where um, actually, end, it start, uh, ended up being no risking, and uh, the banks started doing these risk assessments. Uh, and instead of looking for risks of terrorism and uh, ex, you know or money, laundering, money laundering, they they started looking at newspaper reporting of um, uh, the you know what's in the newspapers about you, what you've said and taken that as a sign of extremism or risk of extremism and terrorism. And of course, Muslims are working in those high-risk countries, so we're disproportionately affected. But having said that, um, it's not uh, exclusive to uh, Muslim charities. I know sometimes we think it is, but the non-Muslim charity sector suffer, uh, suffers from it. Ordinary individuals, poor people, uh, you know, people from conflicts, Syrian community, um, and uh, even ordinary individuals might not be your charity, but your personal account, as as uh, as you as you know. So I think this is a society-wide issue. And uh, what I said yesterday was uh, that uh, in a as we move towards a cashless society, uh, banking, having a bank account. Um, if you don't have one, you're financially excluded. You're excluded from life. So this should be considered a human right. 
and we should have a guaranteed right to a bank account, uh, including for civil society groups, because you can't operate as a charity if you or a civil society group if you don't have a bank account. I mean, if there, if there's uh, an agreement, even if an overarching, very general and broad agreement on this, which makes absolute sense, I mean, what you've just said, the charitable sector, Muslim and none, as you put it, there are many, many non-Muslim charities and individuals as well who are suffering as a result of this. I mean, this sector that is worth tens of billions to the British economy every single year surely has lobbying power. How come this very sensible line is not pushed on decision makers and is not, you know, made something of a call. Uh, you know, this is this is the surprising thing because we sit about uh, uh, sit and talk about it that when charities are being investigated with the charity commission, they understand it, they explain it's nothing to do with them. Uh, it's a per, uh, it's a banking decision. They know it's a wider issue. I know that I've raised it with Muslim groups. Um, and wider society knows that there are financial conduct reports on it, and you know what? It took Nigel Farage. Incredible, uh, you know. It's probably, you know, uh, uh, things work in mysterious ways. I it know. took a man like I Nigel know, Farage to raise this issue, and now that it is there, I think we have to make our voice known that this is a society-wide issue. We can't allow this kind of deprivation taking place. Um, we must have a right to a bank account, and we must we must be able to challenge uh, some of the risk assessments that that they do. I've seen some of the risk uh, assessments, or I get an idea of what they're doing, and sometimes the people doing them, quite frankly, I mean, either they use software which basically says, you know, uh, an arsal to Crete said this on such a day, and that's a risk, and therefore we're not taking risk. Or, uh, you know, um, uh, Dave done a risk assessment. Like I mean, N Nigel Farage, again, he's, I don't know how he's done this because we've never been able to, but he's managed to get his risk assessment out in the public. Uh, and we can now see what, what happens, uh, people's political uh, views, etc. And it's not actually an assessment. I mean, as, as I say, as somebody who knows about risk management, they're not managing the risk they're not even assessing it properly i mean is he a risk on money laundering and terrorism despite all that information so some of the risk assessments are very poor uh, so there has to be a standard there has to be a right to challenge that information and of course banks need to do money laundering checks and um, they do need to do some risk assessment particularly politically exposed people or peps like Nigel Farage. I mean, I know he's made a big fuss about it, but I think it's perfectly right that politicians in particular from this country and overseas, where there's so much corruption and money being transferred, are scrutinized and monitored and considered. You, see, in some you know, this is the thing, uh, Jagir. You know, I, I hail from Iraq and um, it gives me no pleasure to state that for the past 20 years since the invasion and occupation of Iraq. Iraq is one of the most failed countries in the world. It's one of the most corrupt countries in the world. I believe that the 2021 uh, list by uh, Transparency International placed Iraq 
just slightly better than uh, war-torn countries, uh, you know, it, it, like Syria and Yemen and, and the like. An oil-rich country, probably one of the richest countries in the world in terms of its oil revenues, reduced to rubble. And yes, obviously, the invasion and occupation were elementary and instrumental in reducing the country to such. But also, you have the ruling elites and the ruling class who siphoned billions, literally billions. I mean, we're talking about a GDP of, of probably over 100 billion every single year, with slightly over 10 billion delivered in terms of services to the public. So you ask the question, I mean, Yes, of course, transparency and proper governments are important. But going after individuals and organizations, I, I'll, I'll make it personal here, like myself. And then you hear about millions traveling between accounts freely and without accountability, people whom you know, you know, in which world they live, in what dealings they do, and then having mansions in the most affluent quarters of London, for instance, or Paris or the like. And you think to yourself, hang on. I mean, if there's really this stringent monitoring by banks, I mean, surely, I mean, those who are in power in, you know, offices of influence in countries like Iraq, but obviously not exclusively to Iraq. I mean, Pakistan is, an, is another example. I mean, it's, it just doesn't make sense. And there is something that, that, is, that is wrong. Um, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, we had the example of Russian oligarchs. They only became a problem uh, after, the war. after the war. But we've known for a long time absolutely. that they had um, masses of wealth in London, um, we know about Pakistani politicians, the Azerbaijan, even Indian uh, politicians. So um, there does seem to be a a certain set of standards. Maybe I don't know if there's a uh, there's a limit on the amount you have to have before. <laughs> if you have a, a, an amount that's less, maybe you're at risk. <laughs> and if you have an amount in your account, um, so I think there is a serious issue. And of course. At, the think tank that 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 I work on—that's one of the issues, corruption, that we're that we're we're looking at, because it's a, it's a major drain on Muslim countries and it impoverishes Absolutely. them. Absolutely, and uh, we have to deal with it, and we have to ensure that banks deal with that problem, uh, not the small civil society group that, you know, somebody may may have said something. Uh, inappropriate at some some stage, uh, and that's considered. So, you know, some kind of high risk. Um, but there is a general environment as well in most countries um, where civil society uh, and civil activism space is being reduced. Um, we're getting oligarchs and elites who, uh, who are embedded in uh, political systems and their interests dominate and um, uh, obviously they they pressurize governments on laws and you know some of our protest laws that we've had and and, and other other laws so that space is shrinking so the civil society um, not just charitable but the advocacy sector um, we have to protect that because that's one of the things that made this country what it is 
um, you know, the right to, uh, you know, sometimes governments uh, talk as if they're champions of freedom of speech. Um, it wasn't governments that gave in Europe uh, freedom of speech. It was uh, people on the ground, the activists, those who challenge the system, uh, and we shouldn't allow government to, um, you know, close that space. A couple of years back, there was, uh, well, actually, I think it was last year, 2022, when there was uh, uh, quite an extensive and expansive report on Muslim civil society. And um, the thing that you get from flipping through that, that quite bulky report is the fact that we're talking about a vast section. We're talking about uh, a sector that employs tens of thousands of people that uh, covers all areas of, of public life and that benefits the entire country. And in, in the case of you know, various sectors of, of, of the charitable sector particularly, um, even beyond, even beyond Britain. But what does it take for uh, British Muslims to recognize their imprint, their actual impact on British society? I mean, uh, the dominant narrative still seems to cite particularly Muslims, but not exclusively Muslims, I mean, Asians, Africans, Afro-Caribbeans, as being outsiders, as being leeches on society. There is that kind of narrative which, which, which you can sense and which triggers, uh, you know, the, the kind of uh, racist narrative that we catch the glimpses of from time to time. What, how can, can you go on about educating young Muslims to be proud of the kind of effort that has been exerted by their fathers, grandfathers, even great-grandfathers on this country that has brought the kind of reality that we have today? Um, rather than look without, I, I like to look within sometimes. And I think uh, whilst we have this great sector, uh, it's the point that you made earlier about doing similar things and maybe, you know, some of the grant funders that I met, Muslim uh, business people yesterday, they're saying, look, we give grants, we give money, but actually we, we don't know if it's any use because there's no strategy, there's no strategic thinking. We don't know if this is making a difference. So what we have is an imbalance, I would say, um, uh, putting my policy and think tank and local government experience together we've created some brilliant institutions we've got a great institutional framework we haven't created other things that that we thought are important or we didn't realize were important such as challenging racism such as challenging islamophobia i mean if you were to look at organizations we have uh, who do that, there's very few. Uh, so we, we don't uh, have the political groups, the advocacy groups, and charities can't get involved in politics. So there's an imbalance, and maybe we need to uh, move towards more of those type of groups. Uh, and uh, some of those can be charities, challenging racism, can be registered as charities, challenging Islamophobia, uh, and um, uh, maybe we've also put our hat too much into the Labour Party and the 
Tory party or whatever, <clears throat> and not developed independent frameworks, community organization and mobilization. And we've also developed the thinking of um, the race relations industry, where it's, in a way, everybody's fighting for who's the most deprived or claiming who's the most deprived. Now, this is the wrong approach, in my opinion, and, and you know something we're trying to change at Ayan. Uh, if you're constantly pleading poverty, weakness, victimhood, uh, and not selling your strengths and your power, how how much you contribute to this society, which we don't, even our charities, all the great work, nobody promotes that really, uh, then you're not going to have much respect. I mean, speaking frankly, nobody really cares for the poor and the impoverished. True. And That's that's how we presented ourselves. Uh, as people who are, you know, uh, coming here because we're poor, um, we're earning money and we're not, uh, uh, you know, we're a drain on this country, we're not an asset. And I think that has to change. And we have to challenge uh, those images and stereotypes, but we have to create, uh, you know, a, our own strategic approach and not, you know, if it's the Labour Party saying, yeah, all these, this group is deprived. Uh, I, I mean, I was in Oldham, a friend's house, and Oldham is one of the most uh, Oldham, Rochdale, the north of England, some of the um, you know wealthy, uh, most deprived areas. I mean, ten years ago, uh, ten fifteen years ago, if you went in a, to Oldham, uh, I mean, it's there's still deprivation. But uh, I was having dinner at a friend's house, and he said, you know, everyone on this street. That I that I know them all. Everyone's son and daughters are at university. Most of the streets around, their sons and daughters are going to university now. So these are all positives. You know, there's a change. There's a sea change. Yeah, and the uh, fact that he's noting it, he's noting it, means that he comes from a time when that was barely there. Yeah, I mean, we remember that, and 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 now we see it. We see young kids uh, who. Most uh, Muslim children are now getting into education. You go to a place like Manchester, Bradford, we've changed the shape of this country. We've got businesses are flourishing. We've got uh, female businesses, male businesses. The, we've transformed the landscape of this country, but we're not very good at telling our story and promoting uh, how that is a strength. And I think we need to do more of that. And we need to have charities and groups that do more of that work. You touched very, very briefly on something which I want to expand on a little bit more, and that is the uh, the relationship between the Muslim community and the charitable sector particularly, and government. And obviously we are at, in very dynamic, let's call them dynamic political times, um, whilst the uh, the elections are due towards the end of next year, but it is very, very possible that they may happen earlier. And all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, but we are now um, hearing, you know, the kind of sound bites from all politicians uh, that are uh, usually synonymous with times of electioneering. 
And this brings about something that you've mentioned. The, the, the vast majority of the Muslim community has traditionally thrown its hat um, in the labor uh, circle. Um, and to all intents and purposes, and according to all poll, polling uh, surveys and the like, it seems that we are going to end up with a labor government uh, after the next general election. How can you regulate the relationship between the charitable sector and authority. I mean, you spoke about the mis the link, which is a weak one and needs to be strengthened of advocacy and pressuring and the like, but more to the point, the relationship between the Muslim community and the various governments, regardless of whether it be conservative that we've had since you know 2010 uh, or a coming Labour government. How do you regulate for that? How do you legislate for that particular relationship? What kind of relationship do we have? What kind of relationship do we need? What kind of relationship can we expect in light of what's happening here as well as abroad? Um, I think we need to th think this through, uh, perhaps differently than in the past. One, I think we definitely uh, don't project uh, how much we contribute to this country for politicians to take us seriously. Uh, and that's the first. We are not organized independently. Uh, a lot of our mosques organizations are people who are Labour Party members. So that sort of, it's a conflict of interest, that kind of uh, linkage prevents an independent approach, a strategy that we should have. Uh, I'm not saying uh, don't get involved in that, although even there I think we might have to rethink that. I mean, certainly at the moment um, we uh, we have a situation where effectively if you're in the Labour Party, uh, you're in a prison. You can't speak out. If you're in the Conservative Party, you're in a prison. But, you know, we're going to be 10% of the population by two as as a minimum by 2050. Uh, what is wrong with Muslims? I know we've tried in the past, but maybe differently. Um, what is wrong with Muslims standing as independents? If you have enough business people uh, and... Why, do we, why are we trapped between this kind of binary decision, either conservatives or Labour, with a very, very few going to yeah, the or Green? Why is that? I think because we've been convinced that uh, you have to get to power uh, and you have to be in a party that's going to get power to make change. Now, that's not how change has happened in this country. First of all, change in this country, um, the great changes we had always happened uh, or the momentum for change happened outside in movements, in organizations, in civil society, in, sec in sectors, uh, even, you know, women's rights, even the LGBT rights, all these things happened outside the Labour Party itself. It was a labor movement. So, so we are not out there challenging. We are becoming part of a uh, existing system where you can't challenge. Uh, so we have to have that approach as well. And I think uh, once you have that, you, you, we need to be able to speak out. We can't change if you can't speak. Uh, so we have to have other approaches. Our Unfortunately, our parents came uh, as migrant workers and Labour was a party of the labourers. 
the world has changed. Labour is a party of high finance, of elite interest. It doesn't even represent the, the voters of this country anymore. And we can be a great voice, uh, not just for, I'm not saying as, you know, as a minority, because that's how Labour sees us. You know, as a Muslim MP, uh, we use them to get the Muslim vote, and that's what they're there for. No, we're here as change makers to this society. You know, why, why don't we, we should be leading this call for, you know, a banking right, because poor people can't get bank Absolutely. accounts. Absolutely. And if we had independent politicians, an independent political approach, people maybe even, uh, you know, in certainly as councillors, as party members. And, and surely, I mean, because I, I speak with my neighbours, I speak with, with my colleagues, and they come from various backgrounds. And I have to say that there is a very clear, discernible air of desperation. The fact that we don't have a choice, the fact is that regardless of whether we have a Labour or a Tory, it's going to, it's going to be the same, which, which opens the door for, for, for exactly what you're saying, especially that we, you know, I believe that, you know, the kind of sector that we talked about, whether it be the charitable sector or the Muslim civil society sector, surely we have something to say about the NHS. Surely we have something to speak about, you know, the transport system, about how, you know, how public funds are being, are being allocated, how, you know, students and education. Surely we have something to say on those. So in a way, I mean, what you just said is something which needs to be extrapolated and then done in sort of an executive plan on behalf of that sector as to, okay, so what is it that we have to say in regards with the crises that are strangulating the country and are preventing it from achieving the kind of economic, social, political security heights that, you know, potentially are there? Uh, there's a whole scope of things where Muslims, uh, with their ethics and values, have a, uh, you know, will have an appeal in wider society. Uh, you know, the way the poor are treated, the emphasis on the rich, uh, uh, coexistence, uh, you know, anti, even anti-supremacy. Uh, you know, uh, Muslims cannot accept, uh, you know, the racial supremacy of any group. So we, we have to, and we can only project those things independently. I mean, you know, uh, you can't even fly a Palestinian flag in the Labour Party. I mean, what, what is the point of a Muslim being in a political party if you can't speak uh, and uh, you can't even show uh, a flag and you can't ch challenge any of the elites? But, you know, that breaking of the link of traditional democracy, of the parties, those in power and the people is very big. And I think you know, I do think, um, and we have uh, plenty of in, uh, good spokespeople, independents who could uh, have a wider appeal than Muslims and win no, elections. Jangir, I uh, and you're one of them. <laughs> I get to meet hordes of young Muslim men and women in all spheres of life. And I have to say that I am often, you know, dumbstruck by how brilliant they are. You know, what kind of minds they carry, what kind of potential they have, 
you know, to think, to, uh, to, to, to project an intellectual idea that solves, you know, something of a mundane nature, like the issue of poverty at the time of the economic crisis that we, we have. And it, it, so, it, it hurts me how we're, you know, we're not using, we're not utilizing. And these voices are lost on society as a whole. It doesn't matter, you know, ultimately speaking, if I want my kids to go to a good school and receive a proper sound education, I must hope for the same for everyone's kids. Yeah, absolutely. And the same with the NHS, the same with public transport. I can't just be comfortable in my own seat on the tube. Everyone has to be comfortable. And that kind of, of thinking, that kind of potential is there, but it's it's not, because we're, we're not really, as I say, uh, the potential is there in the Muslim community and in wider society. But what we're doing is we're, uh, when we're telling them that your only approach is this, go to a political party, you're, you're actually sending them in a, in a prison, which is going to destroy the town. We have people doing rap. We have poetry. We have people who are, you know, all kinds of political activists. I mean, if somebody came to me with that kind of talent, the last place I would send them is a it's political, a political <laughs> party <laughs> because it's it's like a death sentence. It's, you're going to be in chains the rest of your life. So, so I think we, as a community, have long we're long overdue a strategic rethink uh, on how we do things, and we have resources to play with. We have institutions. We've established an institutional framework. Um, we're familiar with our environment now. Uh, we know what it looks like, um, and we need to map a, uh, a road for the future. Um, and I think, you know, we have some really bright uh, prospects. Uh, of course, it's looking very grim at the moment, uh, but, you know, the passion that you see at the moment, despite an overburdened response to what's happening in the Muslim world, the energy, the the resoluteness not to be uh, you know uh, oppressed and uh, silenced i think you know that that's a great story